When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket, looking back at the season as a whole. And by the way, I'd just like to say thank you from everybody who's contributed to this programme, to all of you listeners, because we're now past one million, or at least one of you out there will be our millionth listener. So thanks very much to all of you for subscribing to this podcast and obviously listening and sending in your points of view and your questions that uh, you've tweeted over the last few days. We'll be answering those shortly with two of my colleagues from the cricketer, Guy and James. But as we're at the Keir Oval, I just thought we'd uh, congratulate Surrey initially on winning the championship title. The way they've played this summer has really sort of raised the bar in county championship terms. And Alex Stewart and his team should take a lot of credit for the way they've approached it, not only in the way they've played, but I think, I think in the recruitment of the teams... Guy and James, actually, because the, the way they've recruited someone like Morley Morkel, for instance, a, a, a star player, but someone who was really going to put something back to the team. There's a video, actually, on the Cricketer website, which, which I shot with Morley in the car driving around the Oval. It's quite a funny character, so, so look out for that. But he's just a, a man who has a lot of influence on players, as well as an influence on the game, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. I mean, I think that it was a... <clears throat> few years back, um, perhaps under Chris Adams' captain's uh, coaching, where Surrey were picking up quite a few of the older players. Um, Solanke was one, Gareth Batty has always been a huge success, um, and perhaps weren't developing the number of um, young players that they might have done, given the size of the um, catchment area that they have. But I think what's been impressive this season is the number of uh, young academy players that have made a real telling contribution, not least Rory Burns, whose numbers are extraordinary. And one hopes or expects we'll, we'll, we'll get the nod for the touring party. But as you say, Simon, the, the um, recruitment of some really gone overseas players, Morkel, obviously, Dean Elgar, and they had a number of players playing in the T20, which, OK, they didn't get to final stay, but had a great all-round season. And their women's won the Kia yes, Super League as well. Right. And in fact, it's interesting talking about the, the, the influence of Morkel because Alex Stewart says that one of the things they had put in place over the last couple of years was... A, uh, having had Kumar Sangakara for the previous couple of years, they had a line in the dressing room when Kumar wasn't there and there was a critical moment in a game and they weren't quite sure what to do. Their line was, what would, Ku- what would Kumar do? And that kind of almost in- inferred and, and, and you know, educated 
uh, what they would do. Uh, so, and I think they're doing that now with Morkel. What would Morney do in this situation? What would he bowl in this situation sort of thing? So mm. um, clearly that th there is that bigger influence on a major personality. It it's important, isn't it, that? Because it's not just about playing, it's about influencing players and probably the next generation. Mm, and I think before they uh, went for Sankakara, I mean, Graham Smith came here and I think they were hoping for him to have a similar sort of effect. And in the end, it didn't work because of injury and so on. But that was a bit unfortunate for them. It was one of those sort of unforeseen things. Um, but Sangakara, I mean, an incredible success. You know, obviously, Surrey, as, as the Oval and it being in London, they can pull in these absolute marquee players um, to come along yes. here and be here and flit in and out and so on. But Sangakara did more than that. He was sort of committed to the cause. He, was, he wanted to score big first-class centuries, and he's clearly had a big impact on a lot of players. I mean, they... <laughs> You know, even just the little things he'll say here and there in the slip cord. And uh, I know that Ben Folk said to me a couple of years ago, he just, instead of just thinking about it, it sort of sunk in straight away. Anything that he would say, sort of, everyone sort of sat back and thought, oh, okay, better think about that because it's Kumar Sangakara. So, yeah, a huge impact he's had. And Morkel is a fascinating one because he does have time left in his career, doesn't he? You know, he, yeah. he's chosen to do this. Obviously, not everyone. Obviously, this sort of thing does have implications for South Africa, but you know he's got time left in his career. He's probably got still got that ticker. He's got that hunger to still achieve something. It's not just a player at the end of his career. Well, there's a broader question there, isn't there? I mean, I see Wayne Parnell's just um, effectively given up on his South Africa career, which obviously wasn't quite as um, successful as Morning Morkels. But there is a broader question there about okay, to county cricket's gain is to world or international cricket's um, cost, which perhaps is a going to be a problem for the line is quite sad for South Africa, particularly given the strength or relative um, non-strength of the RAND and their, the money that comes in. But I don't know whether you agree on that. Well, one of the uh, interesting things actually about Morkel was that, that, from this video that I did with him actually, was that I, I said, what places do you like touring or playing at the best? And he said, places where I can go fishing. <laughs> and he can take his fishing rod with him, which isn't an awful lot of use around where we are now, Kennington. By the way, on the subject of the Keir Oval, uh, of course, it's 50 years since the Dolavira affair, that great innings by Basil Dolavira, and the clear-up afterwards, which allowed England to win that match. And I just mentioned that because we're at the Keir Oval today, and uh, the Cricketer magazine this month does have a big feature on the Dolavira affair and all the ramifications of it. There's some brilliant stuff written in that section. Simon Barnes, who contributes to it, actually has said, the, the great Times, former Times writer, says that he, he's just privileged, he feels privileged to actually be part of that section of the, of the magazine. So we're very proud of it. And it does also cover off the, uh, all sorts of incidents in the county game and the international game as well. And it's only just out, so there's no time to lose to pick it up. Um, and as we're talking about county performances, um, should just go to one of the first uh, tweets that I had last week, uh, which is from Andy Camella, A. Camella, uh, who says, I just hope you give a proper congratulations to Worcestershire and our young homegrown team and recognise the irony that smaller non-test ground counties are performing best in T20. Well, what have you got to say about that guy? You've got a bit of insight there, maybe? <laughs> well, I, I think the first thing to say is that um, I, I was thrilled that Worcester won. Um, when I looked at the teams playing in the final, obviously I've followed the competition quite carefully, um, I just really wanted um, Worcestershire, or possibly if it wasn't going to be Worcestershire, then um, Sussex to win, because it's nice to have a um, non-test playing side win. I, I, just looking back at how they performed last year, where we've, we've touched upon this earlier, um, 
smaller or perceived smaller counties losing star players to bigger clubs. Of course, they lost Tom Kohler-Cadmore, who was smashing it around the park the year before, opening the batting for the T20. They lost him last season to um, to Yorkshire, where he's performed very well and had a season of 14 games and only three victories, finishing second bottom of the North Group. This season completely transformed their game. Um, nine wins, top of the group, and then obviously went on to win the competition, benefiting by um, having Moeen Ali back uh, during his hiatus from the England side for, for much of the summer. But as, 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 as the reader asks, lots of homegrown players um, and a side that approached the competition with a clear um, plan. Yes, Simon, as you allude to, they um, we do some work with them. They use the PIR platform that we developed. A number, of, one of a number of counties who use it. Can you just explain that in a little bit more detail? Well, I suppose that the the, comp- the, the, the system itself allows um, sides um, to uh, look behind the numbers. And rather than just looking at averages and strike rate, it's about looking at their players and how they perform in different circumstances of the game. So whether batting first, bowling first, in any given number of ball sequence in the game, how they start in innings, how they score runs uh, in victory and defeat, bowling, how they perform against different types of bowlers. And I think there's lots of benefits to it, some of which is recruitment. So if you've got a deficit of late order hitters, then you might want to go out and recruit them using the system that we've got that the, the counties can access and identify how what player might fill in that gap. But also it's about player development. And, and as we've mentioned, lots of young players and it's about identifying throughout the year which areas of the game they need to work on. Um, so that's really what the system, but I think is in, in part, it just shows a county who's taking the format seriously, um, have identified that they're going to make that a priority and use the system um, as one very small part of an overall strategy to try and um, achieve success, which they've obviously done. I mean, I, I'd only watched um, Pat Brown bowl a few times and I was a bit worried that finals day he might come undone, but... What were his overall figures? Eight overs, four for 36. I mean, just extraordinary to do it in the first semi-final, going for a few more runs, not many, but taking four wickets. In the final, four overs for 19, extraordinary. And then Ben Cox smashing runs in, in both semi and final. Um, Moeen Ali getting 41 in both um, both games and taking wickets. And it was just wonderful to see him at the end of the match, putting the A, doing a team talk, which was lovely, and getting everyone to sing Ben Cox's name. Mm. But then putting the... Um, the winner's medal on his kid. It was just wonderful. It was great to see a uh, smaller or non-test playing county who might not pop- take part in this new competition, whatever that ends up being, uh, winning the competition. And actually, lots of the non-test playing grounds have been more successful. I think Leicester have won it three times. Northampton have won it a couple of times. It's, it's a nice aspect, isn't it, to T20, that it does allow the smaller counties to, to prosper. And so very well done to Worcestershire. Very well run club I'd say and actually just an enlightened club I, I enjoyed uh, the trip down to Worcester this year to watch England Lions playing in, in India A actually and just the way they've set up the ground there and the way they've used the space the, the hotel on the, the premises the conferencing facilities and all that it's really a blueprint for how other counties smaller counties could run their business and now they've proved well I would say even if you don't Guy the appliance of science using it very effectively in the winning of the T20. So really well done to that. James, you've got anything to I, add there? Just to say that I think what's been remarkable in previous years is that, uh, OK, Worcestershire, fi- they've finally sort of cracked T20 now. They did struggle for a number of years uh, in that. But they've always managed to... I suppose they're the yo-yo team in the championship, aren't they? They're, they're, sort of, they're, they're often, along with Somerset, the only non-test um, staging county that's in Division 1. 
And really, if you look at their resources over the course of a, you know, a 14 or a 16 game season, whatever it is, it's quite astonishing, really. And that they're able to compete at that level. OK, they do struggle when they go up. but And, and also, I suppose, um, having lost um, Bumpy Rhodes, who'd yeah. been there for how long, do you think? Long time. So he, I think he was one of the... Him and McNeil have been the two longest serving county coaches, yeah. Famously swam across the submerged New Road outfield to get his laptop once. Yeah. <laughs> um, really? Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, they sort of extolled the virtues of him after the game. They all spoke very fondly about what he'd done for them. And it was probably quite um, sad, the circumstances in which he left the club. Um, I mean, Joe Clark's just gone to not, so... It, it, Let's hope that doesn't have a destabilising factor on Worcester because um, Brett Dolivera did say in an interview in the magazine uh, that when Cola Cadmore left, it did have a bit of an impact because they're such a tight-knit group. Um, they don't have a huge squad um, and they sort of rely on that on, on that close um, bond to, to achieve stuff. So let's hope that doesn't um, impact badly. And actually, it reminds me of, of that wonderful picture that um, our colleague Sam Morshead took when he was down at the press day before the season, which was a picture of the, um, the pre-season... That the t- a team photo taken on the outfield in literally the only corner that wasn't submerged in water, but it was a wonderfully sort of English um, <laughs> scene and, and was very widely shared, etc., on social media. But it's, if you get a chance, check out that picture, it's extraordinary. It's incredible, actually, that um, they're, they're incredibly calm about that. I interviewed the groundsman a couple of years ago when, when we did the county set feature, and, and I was like, Well, how do you deal with it with the ground being submerged every spring? He said, Oh, we just get on with it, it's just one of those things, it comes and then it goes. <laughs> oh, I, I also have a real soft spot for Worcester because I've got a friend. Um, whose parents lived down there and I always remember going to, to the Waitrose there this was about 15 years ago and seeing Graham hit, go, going around Waitrose in the shopping trolley I just thought it's a wonderfully sort of homegrown ground with Graham Hick and the local Waitrose buying his groceries on a Sunday so great to see them win yeah absolutely um, right let's go to, to another question and we've already mentioned this subject actually uh, from Richard99 Ricker Cricket Fan do listeners look forward to the introduction of the ECB 100-ball competition? Well, we've got our expert, our, our man, our sort of like mole behind the scenes, James Coyne here, who was actually at one of the trial matches the other day. Mm-hmm. So what did you make of it at Trent Bridge? Well, uh, I mean, it was all experimental, really. There were, there were two games back-to-back um, at... Trent Bridge on a Monday, um, mostly involving second 11 players um, and with a few sort of proven uh, first teams in there, Samit Patel, Chris Little um, and uh, Daryl Mitchell. And interestingly, Daryl Mitchell got there on the Sunday, having been out the night before on the Saturday celebrating Worcestershire's win. And then he left on Monday to go and play for Essex. So he was really doing a stint. He's the chairman of the PCA as well. So he's sort of intricately involved in this. Um, yeah, it was, uh, the spinners did very well. I think that's partly because the wicket was quite worn. But it, it, it does raise an interesting question because uh, the ECB want this to be an incredibly s- slick and sharp and the quick, mat- quick matches. You know, the games were, were done and dusted in, in, in two and a half hours, uh, which is what they want. Mm. Um, but there was a lot of spin bold. So what happens when you've got a Tamar Mills with his long run-up? Do we want to be diluting that? Do we want to go back to the days of the Sunday league where bowlers have to bowl off short run-ups? Please don't. Please don't. Please I mean, don't. you were there, Simon. You did it. So Not very well. No. but it's well, awful. <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, it does beg that question. Are we going to be able to fit it into that time frame and, and keep the cricket to be satisfactory? Did it, did it feel a bit, almost a bit relentless as well? Because you're having blocks of 20 balls from one end, I think, with sometimes a 10 ball over. 10 ball over in inverted mm. commas. Did it all seem a bit sort of almost mechanical, perhaps? Um, it, it was. It was so. It was, it was ten batches of ten, effectively. Sometimes with f- f- five and five, and then you switch ends, or sometimes ten and then you switch so ends. So twenty-five balls from yeah. one end. Um, 
what Samit Patel and Daryl Mitchell said was that there needed to be uh, a clear indication of, of, of when the five is over or when the ten is over. Um, Which the they hadn't got at the moment. Well, they do. the umpires were saying, that's five. They weren't saying, that's over. They were saying, that's five or that's ten. And they were sort of motioning, that's five, and motioning towards the fielding skipper, you know, are you going to keep your bowler on for another five? Um, so that, they, they said that that's one thing that does need to be made clearer. Apparently, they're saving four or five minutes by doing that changeover of ends nine times rather than 19. It saves about four or five minutes. Um, you know, doesn't seem worth it, almost, yeah. does it? Because one of the questions that I've got is um, the, the, one of the unique aspects of cricket is that um, people who don't follow it can't really understand why you can't tell people who's winning a game. That's just the vagaries of the way cricket scored. I think the thing that, I, that I'm slightly struggling with is that it's going to require even hardened cricket fans who you might argue ECB aren't interested in attracting, but that's a different point. How, how are they going? They're going to have to completely reimagine how they understand where a team is. So, what, because you mean it, it, now we know the run rate per over required is nine and over, whereas now it's going to be 55 off... 32 balls, which and, and, doesn't and, com, com correlate to a runs per hour. Yeah, well, am I going to have to stop thinking in terms of my current understanding of what a one way is achievable, i.e., you know, eight at the beginning is fairly achievable, you might be okay chasing 50 off the last five, 10 and over. I suppose it's well, going to change, is it going to change to runs required per ball yeah. rather than runs per over? And in a way, 100 balls, 210 to win. It's 2.1 per but, ball, but, isn't but, it? But I suppose my, my, my issue with that is that, OK, if a side needs 9 and over, they need 1.5 per ball. And on any given dot ball, you're saying, oh, we've slipped behind. You hit a four, oh, we've gone well ahead of the runway. The whole point about an over is that that is a significant... Um, that, that is a significantly large sample size within an innings for them to say, right, we had the big, we got 15 off that over. That was five more than we actually need. On a ball-by-ball -ball basis, it's like you're saying, OK, we won that ball, we lost that ball. It just is going to require, um, you know, the, the understanding of maths and calculations to change even for the sort of best mathematicians. Hopefully this. they'll be able to, to sort that out on a big screen by sort of breaking it down more simply. How was it displayed at Trent Bridge? I mean, they, they hadn't done that. I mean, so we're looking at a scoreboard here at the Oval and um, it was very much done along the same lines. It was, it, it was, it was balls bowled and, and, and balls remaining. Um, mm. So, but it, was, but it was small. It, it was at the bottom of the scoreboard. They hadn't got to the stage yet because this is just an experimental game. Obviously the scoreboards and all the banners and all of everything we're gonna have proclaiming the number of balls left weren't there yet. Um, yeah, I mean, Samit Patel said we're going to have to think in terms of balls rather than overs. He actually said that. So I think the players have been, you know, they've had seven or eight trial matches here. They probably started, started to get their heads around it. But what was interesting is they had the strategic timeout, which Samit Patel called at the earliest possible stage, I think, which is after 25 balls, uh, two and a half minutes. And the coaches can come on to uh, relay information about what they need, um, which obviously the purists won't like because it should be down to the captain in their view. But that did make for quite an interesting point in that game because after Samit Patel called that timeout and the opposition was 66 for naught chasing 137, they duly collapsed afterwards um, <laughs> right. and lost all their wickets for virtually nothing, uh, which was quite incredible, really. Uh, and James, um, at, 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 the, at the day itself, um, how visible were ECB representatives and how much explanation to the, to the press that were there was there, both on an ongoing basis and after the match? And were there any particular messages it was clear to you the ECB were trying to sort of encourage you to take? Um, I think I think once that once that timeout had had that effect that you know they were naturally um, interested and encouraged that, that one of their sort of um, tactical introductions had that effect on a game. Um, I don't think that's the 
um, the so-called tactical innovation that they were initially trumpeting when this was announced. I'm not, I think that was probably the 10 ball over at the end, which they seem to have shelved for now, although obviously there were, there were 10 balls in a row for some bowlers, but it didn't, they didn't have that mandatory one at the end, which they were trumpeting at, at the end. Um, so uh, there, there were ECB officials all around the ground. There were people in the pavilion. There were people dotted around the boundary. Uh, there, there was the ECB consultant, Trent Woodhill, was there, sort of um, a very uh, experienced T20 expert. And he was around there sort of passing his judgment on it. There, uh, there was a whole brain trust of ECB commercial and cricketing people there because obviously it's down to the cricketing people to sort of make sense of the idea that's emanated from, from this 100-ball idea and try and make it work in a time frame. But at least from the ECB's perspective, it's full steam ahead, no derailment to the plan. It seems to be, although keep an eye out for September the 27th because, uh, as my colleague Hugh Turbeville has reported, that's the day when um, the county chairman and chief execs are apparently meeting. It's also the last day of the women's trials at Loughborough. So um, uh, I hear one of those games only lasted 75 balls or one of the innings. So that's news to me, Simon. But you, you, well, I heard it, was, it wasn't good. a particularly great uh, experiment well, good, that, uh, for the women in particular. But anyway, well, my, overall yeah. verdict? As it's probably too early to say, in all honesty, but what, my, 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 my initial gut feeling was it was very, it was very good for spinners. Spinners can be kept on if the captain is is confident that they can get through ten for a good, um, uh, if they can get through a, a good ten balls. What could be fascinating is under the current rules that we play, a bowler can theoretically bowl twenty of twenty of the first twenty five balls if they switch ends at a certain time. So if you get Rashid Khan or Yasser Shah on a turning pitch, that could make for quite interesting cricket and good for a spinner. I can't see how this is going to work at the moment for fast bowlers, if I'm honest. But I'm willing to be, have my mind changed. I think there's a lot of people out there who are in the camp of accepting the need for a new short-form competition not necessarily involving counties but why on earth aren't we just doing it in t20 absolutely <laughs> yeah and i would be, i would certainly uh, echo that as well okay well listen we'll pause that discussion for now and um, we'll just take a quick break and afterwards we'll talk a, a little bit more about some of your questions and also look at the england prospective selections for sri lanka Welcome back, and we're just going to look ahead a little bit and look back as well to a fabulous summer cricket. Just before we do that, there's one question I'd just like to answer here from Graham Allen, G Allen 70, who says, uh, I'd be interested to know why fast bowlers' run-ups seem shorter now than in the relatively recent past, say, 10 years ago, which is a good question. I think there's probably a culture, actually, of trying to minimise the amount of distance a, a fast bowler runs for a, from a stamina point of view for a start. I mean, if you think about people like Michael Holding and before him, Wayne Daniel, Dennis Lilly, you know, they ran an absolute mile. Malcolm Marshall was another one. And while it was a great sight, I don't really think it was that good for their actual bowling. I think it probably actually took a lot out of them. Yeah, Bob Wills is another one. I think it probably took quite a lot out of them. And if you talk to someone like Jimmy Anderson, his key to his run-up is the last six steps. So the first four or five are just to get to get a rhythm going. And then the first, the last six steps are really when he gets his momentum and hits the crease hard. And it's all about hitting the crease really well with your body upright, bowling over the top of your front leg. However you can get to that point is, is up to you. But I think over time, bowlers have realised that they don't need to run a mile. They just need to get a bit of rhythm going. And then it's all about the last five or six tries. That's probably one of the reasons. It might be the strength and conditioning people who said to fast bowlers, look, you don't need to run from the boundary. That would be my overall thing. But it's still important that a bowler finds his own natural run-up. And there shouldn't be a prescription for how long it should be, generally. Anyway, good question there. I don't know if that's uh, particularly answered it. Now we've got uh, a question here from MC, 
saying, what is your favourite moment of the summer? Uh, that's a nice, sort of simple question to answer. So we'll go through that. Guy, what's yours? Well, I think for me, um, it was the... Um it was the first test of the um, of the summer, which was obviously quite late. It began right at the beginning of August, so we had a long period of limited overs cricket, which I also love. But there's nothing better than the start of a test match summer, and all of us who love test match cricket were obviously a bit sort of um, concerned that it wouldn't be a close series. But um, India disabused us of that concern very early on. Um, by on day one reducing England or bowling England out for just over just over two hundred and eighty having been at one point 216 for four, and that um, one out by Root um, really turned the match. Although India couldn't actually win, we witnessed 149 by Kohli, which was just sublime batting, and India just failing to chase down 190-odd. Um, and it just it set up what was a wonderful Test match summer. And I, I think although England won 4-1, I mean, really, I think that series could have gone either way. Uh, Joe Root um, won all um, five tosses, um, which was obviously huge um, importance. India's seamers were brilliant. Uh, it was just sort of key moments that England won. So I, I just thought it was a wonderful Test match summer and, and, and great that that format um, shined so brightly in the latter half of the summer. What about you, James? Well, I, I was, I was um, lucky enough to be at Trent Bridge for the, uh, for the third Test match. Um, and uh, it's always a joy to be at Trent Bridge, even, even for hun- the 100 ball games when there's no one in the ground because it's a, a sort of a closed doors game. But uh, yeah, so I, I was at Trent Bridge for the test and seeing Jasprit Bumrah running was absolutely brilliant. I mean, I remember Moeen Ali telling me a couple of years ago, he said, I don't think English cricket could have produced Jasprit Bumrah because he's so unorthodox and his action's so unusual. His run-ups, so he just talks about run-ups. He's, <laughs> his run-ups like, it's like a, the Miranda Hart's galloping pony. So, um, you know, it, it, he... Seeing him bowl was absolutely superb. He changed the series, actually, because, uh, you know, his impact and India winning that game changed the sort of uh, the pace of the series up to that point. Um, it was in what you'd expect to be traditional English uh, conditions that game, yet India won it handsomely. Um, I'm not sure I want to keep wicket to him because everything's angling down the leg side and then he gets his huge crunching outside edges so the keeper's completely wrong wrong footed you need jackknifing keepers you do basically. you do basically so that's why Rishabh Pan had a bit of a mare there in that respect but a great test match um, and just great to see him in the flesh really yeah I, I, I agree, agree with you about Boomerah and my best moment of the summer actually also comes from Trent Bridge we, we obviously don't want to forget the, the Alistair Cook amazing moment at, at, the, at the Oval here, but for me, actually, the, the coming of age and test cricket of Joss Butler mm-hmm. was a, a very satisfying moment because, you know, when I first saw him, I just thought he's, he was someone of exceptional talent, sublime talent, sublime timing of the ball. He, he, he seems to caress the ball to the boundary with incredible power and sort of has this amazing range and yet he does it in such a nonchalant way and in such an attractive way. He's not a brutal attacker of the ball like a, a Jason Roy or an Aaron Finch with the, with the Surrey kind of analogy continuing here. He just... He just times the ball, times the ball to death, and he plays it in such an exquisite way. And to see him come from that T20 background uh, with all those you know funky shots, and to really establish himself in Test cricket and play an authentic Test innings, which got England out of a hole and had 
you know, a beginning, a middle and an end. And it had deft touches as well as powerful touches and such good shot selection and the reaction afterwards of him making his first Test 100, someone you thought just wanted to play one-day cricket five years ago, but has now really established himself in the England side and was England's leading run scorer this summer. It's just been a beautiful thing to see. And Simon, um, I've never met him, but every time I hear him interviewed and the, and, and the way he carries on, he just comes across as just an absolutely lovely chap. And yeah. I guess my first question would be, is that the case? And secondly, um, going back to the introduction of a new, um, a new competition, um, I think, or I hope what will happen is that people like Joss Butler will become household names given the extraordinary talent he's got and the exposure that the competition will get through being on BBC. So is he a lovely chap? He is a lovely chap. He's very understated and he's someone who, uh, amazing to me really, from the modern age of the, the, the big ego in in international sport, he asks you questions. He comes up to, to, to me, and I, I'm, I'm sort of meaningless to him, really, and he, he's interested in what I do and how I do it, and he will approach people that he works with outside the game and take a lot of interest in their lives and try and expand his own horizons uh, in a very understated just sort of natural kind of way. He's interested in people. Yeah, were you saying, um, you know, Manoj Badali, who yeah. owns the Rajasthan Royals, and I think it was you that told me that they sat on an aeroplane together next to each other, right. and he spent the whole um, course of the flight asking Manoj about business and how he sets up. And, I mean, that's and, just and, so and, wonderfully... And when he could do some work experience, yeah. you know, to, to broaden his outlook on life and, and learn another skill. So, just love, yeah, fantastic. I just love the way he plays the game. He, he, yeah. he, he just proves you don't have to be... You know, nattering away and just spouting meaningless stuff all the time. He just he just gets on with it, and I don't know. I just something something about his demeanour, the way he plays the game, is wonderful. I is think. that is that your not your style behind the assumptions? No, I, you well, I'm, keep no, quiet. I try, I try, yeah, I try to. I'm quite, You're not a sledger then. I'm only five foot six, so I've got to keep quiet. Really, no, I'm not a sledger really. No. <laughs> oh, that's disappointing. Sorry. Right, listen. Moving on. Um, looking ahead. Looking ahead. Um, there's a question here from FL. Uh, I can't actually... F. Laurie, I think his name is, or F. Lammy. There's a question here from F. Lammy, who says, would you drop Stuart Broad for Sri Lanka and bring in Ollie Stone or Jamie Overton? I would say, actually, that I wouldn't drop Stuart Broad. I think I'd take Anderson and Broad, because everybody says, you've got to rest them. Well, resting them from what? They're only playing test cricket now, pretty much. So There's three tests in Sri Lanka, three tests in West Indies. It's, it's, it's the sort of thing I can imagine they want to play. Both of them still want to challenge themselves to produce the goods away from home. They're fed up of people saying, oh, you're only good in English conditions. They want to prove people wrong. There's also the financial element to it as well. If you don't get picked on tour, you don't get, you don't get paid. So I can see that from both points. Neither of them are looking in any way fatigued. They've both talked about the... Great advantage of not playing one day cricket and being able to preserve their bodies and preserve their energy for, for test cricket. So I would pick both of them, but I would take an Ollie Stone or Jamie Overton on tour to give them some experience and maybe play a test match. I, th I think the thing to say about that is that mm. England at the, in the past, it's been proven that playing three right arm seams who are bowling pretty much effectively at the same pace doesn't always work in overseas conditions. I mean, I think Broad got dropped during the last Ashes series, didn't he, at one stage? Um, so. You know, there will come a time when we can't just rely on that sort of pace. On that sort of pace, and one of them will, may have to not Anderson, obviously, but one of the seamers, as it were, 
might have to give way to someone a bit more explosive. You know, well, that, yes. that's the way I see it. Simon, in, in your um, interview with James Anderson, this month's Cricketer magazine, he actually talked about how much he enjoys the challenge of, of bowling in Sri Lanka. Just, he does. What, what yes. He... Well, he did. And, and he, he says that he's realised over the last four or five years that he can have a role on grounds and play conditions where it's not swinging. And that's been a, a major asset to his overall mental approach that he knows he can contribute, even if the ball's not swinging around corners. And it will be like that in a place like Sri Lanka. It won't swing much, but he'll find other ways of, of being of value, even if it's in a containing role, and to, you know, picking up the odd wicket while allowing others to perhaps get, get you know, met better effect from the other end. So, and, and just developing your skills to make the ball move fractionally and m maybe, you know, uh, sort of really streamline, sophisticate your reverse swing skills so that you just move it enough to get it past the edge. It, it doesn't have to be massive amounts of movement. It's just enough to get the batsman out of position and, and, and then ultimately pin him LBW or, or caught behind. So uh, what, what he was saying in that interview was that he's just learned lots of subtle skills over the last five years, which have made him more effective abroad, and he wants to continue proving that. And I guess the question is, if, if England need to, to, to find replacements for Broad and Anderson, then are we comfortable that the limited overs format, or 50 over format in particular, is a good place for them to get a sense in someone like Sri Lanka of, of, of what that step up to international cricket's like, or do you think there is too much of a difference between test I think cricket? there is now, really. I mean, it's certainly useful to show how someone can handle the environment of an international arena and the pressure and the attention and obviously the, 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 all the kind of analysis that you get in an international uh, environment. But the 50 over and five day game are so different now, I'm not sure that it does prove a huge amount. Anderson and Broad don't play in the 50 over cricket, do they? So the skills are, are totally different. Maybe a Tom Curran could actually be effective in test cricket ultimately because of his variations, especially away from home. So he might get a chance. But I think your point, James, is right, that they need someone with pace. That was the thing that they lacked in Australia, was someone with real pace. So uh, uh, definitely an Ollie Stone or a Jamie Oberton would be worth a try mm. to maybe give them a test to see how they go. I mean, do we think in Sri Lanka that actually, the, you know, is it going to be one and lost on, on the spinners and how we play, how could our well batsmen be. play them? You it know, could, could well be. Especially the way Sri Lanka are playing at the moment. You know, they're not as strong as they were, but they have got a couple of good spinners. So, um, yeah. you know, Best, I was saying in an interview in the, in the, in the latest mag that, that England don't have the preparation time that they might do for overseas tours at the end of the season. Um, so they've really got to crack that, really, haven't they? Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. Preparation is key, as Graham Mutchalice used to like to say. <laughs> if you fail to prepare, prepare to fail. <laughs> oh, well. Uh, well, with that, I think we'll uh, bid you adieu. Um, just to say that we're actually very proud of the, the current issue of the, of the magazine because, apart from anything else, the cover. D'Oliveira on the cover, the, the great picture from the 1960s of that fantastic iconic figure the man who not only changed the game but in a way changed the whole world actually by his influence on the outcome of the regime of apartheid and the way that the, the country the world reacted to what he did was it was one of the sort of moments of the 20th century really so we've captured that from 50 years ago in various ways with various different points of view. Great columnists as well in the, the magazine this month, Barney Rone from The Guardian, Michael Henderson, many of you will know, Mike Selby, of course, who's no longer with The Guardian. So we've got lots of really interesting writers, Gideon Hay as well, 
who, who writes, of course, for The Australian and for The Times. So generally, we've, we've got some fantastic writers at The Cricketer. And I should add, of course, that George DeBell of Crick Info has also joined us at The Cricketer magazine as well, writing a, a spiky column every month. Anyway, thank you to my colleagues from The Cricketer, Guy Evans-Tipping and James Coyne. Thank you to you for listening. We'll look forward to the announcements of the England parties for the One Day and Test Tour to follow. And in the meantime, we'll be back with you next week. See you then. Sports Social Podcast Network.